For the past several years, I've been uploading podcasts at the rate of one a week. This has involved watching and re-watching anywhere between six to eight pictures a day. In addition, I would then mix in specific sequences from related films and free associate them by watching one movie while listening to another. I never saw that as a problem, as I wasn't hurting anyone, and because I always knew I could quit any time I wanted. But, recording my 400th episode last Sunday, I was confronted by family and friends and subjected to an intervention. Consequently, it has been agreed that this should be my final podcast. Fittingly, perhaps, the subject I have chosen is the film that is the very cause of my addiction to cinema. An addiction, I might add, for which I have never sought treatment, simply because it is an addiction from which I never wish to be cured. It is well documented that Jaws was an extremely difficult film to make, but one evening, late during its arduous production, Steven Spielberg released some frustration by doodling off a series of storyboards to show how he could have made the film in a variety of ways. His first sketches illustrated how he could have done the entire thing as a pastiche of Alfred Hitchcock. Then, with a second set of drawings, Spielberg changed the visual style, but reframed them to echo the way Orson Welles depicted megalomaniacal men caught up in Shakespearean power struggles. And finally, just for good measure, Spielberg then completely inverted everything he had just shown, so the story suddenly became an existential crisis in the vein of Ingmar Bergman, replete with intense close-ups of the fishermen as they realised they are not hunting a shark, but struggling against God. Mr Vaughan, what we are dealing with here is a perfect engine, uh, an eating machine. It's really a miracle of evolution. All this machine does is swim and eat and make little sharks and that's all now why don't you take a long close look at this sign those proportions are correct love to prove that wouldn't you get your name into the national geographic even geniuses have their idols and watching spielberg's early films it is evident who his heroes were for hitchcock look no further than the reverse zoom in jaws that he cribbed from vertigo Then, in long single takes, when he arranged the actors within his frame and had them move as he moved the camera, you were reminded of Citizen Kane. As for Raiders of the Lost Ark, when Indiana Jones scrambles to escape the rolling boulder, you instantly recall Pinocchio when Jiminy Cricket is chased by an eight ball all the way down the chute of a pool table. But while it would be a stretch to see where Bergman would figure in a Spielberg scenario, in his early career the influence of at least three other giants is very clear. Stanley Kubrick, John Ford and David Lean. More of which later, but for now, watching Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you can see Spielberg play with imagery from those masters while supplementing them with his own artistry. Because, like all emerging talents that are ultimately unique talents, Spielberg did not settle for mere mimicry. For those early films, he absorbed the most iconic moments of Disney's kinetic animation, Hitchcock's suspense, Kubrick's sense of awe, Ford's familial homestead and Lean's sense of isolation, and welding them to his own distinctive vision, delivered films no one else was making. The 1970s is regarded as a hangover from the 60s, when that decade's heady idealism came crashing down in ruins. The 70s was a difficult decade that saw a US president resign from office, America's catastrophic involvement in Vietnam come to an ignominious end, the civil rights movement yet again systematically and stealthily stalled and the cultural mood become riddled with paranoia and scepticism. It was against such a backdrop that Spielberg raised the curtain on what I call his Valley of Wonders, 
a magical space where the sky is painted by music. Here is Spielberg in 1999 being interviewed by James Lipton for Inside the Actor's Studio, recalling the childhood moment that inadvertently inspired Close Encounters. Uh, we were living in uh, Haddonfield, New Jersey, and my dad took me out of bed one night and he drove me to a place where there were many people and they were all lying on picnic blankets on a little green hill and he took a blanket from the trunk of the car, spread it out, we laid down, looked up, and every couple of seconds there was a tremendous bolt of light across the sky and it was this like a Perseus meteor, meteor shower that was going by and it was the first time I realized there was a sky up there. From that perspective, Close Encounters unfolds as if it were a map charting a child's discovery of the night sky, where the darkness does not hold terrors but wonders between points of light. And those points of light are not your destination, but rather pointers themselves urging you ever onward, ever deeper, into the endless mysteries of space. Of course, the cinema screen is a surrogate for Spielberg's night sky, and so it is only fitting that the first words uttered in the film come in the form of a question. It seems a straightforward question, but as the film unfolds, and as the three kinds of encounters are experienced, we come to realise that Spielberg didn't just mean for the investigators to ask whether they were the first to arrive at the site in Mexico's Sonoran Desert, but whether we are the first sentient beings, and not just here on Earth, but in the universe. By the end of the film, that question has been answered in the most unexpected, definitive and optimistic way which stands the film in stark contrast to the cultural, political and cinematic climate into which Spielberg was born. His formative experiences came in the 1950s, when the Cold War abducted science fiction, transforming it into a genre of propagandist paranoia, with films such as It Came From Outer Space, Earth vs. The Flying Saucers and Invaders From Mars had little green men as proxies for the Soviet Red Army. I saw this picture in the Herald. Spaceships in formation. Gee. Hey, looky here. Here's a story about that Air Force captain, Captain Mantell. He was in a plane over Kentucky when he practically bumped into a saucer. January 7th, 1948. A round object estimated to be at least 250 feet in diameter. He radioed in and chased it. Kept calling in all the time. Then... Then what? His plane just blew up. Blown to pieces. Disintegrated. The wreckage was scattered nearly a mile. Disintegrated? Oh, what happened? Nobody knows, Pat. Not even the military. Close Encounters premiered on November the 16th, 1977. But well over a decade earlier, a then 17-year-old Spielberg made his motion picture debut when, on March the 24th, 1964, he premiered Firelight. Running at 135 minutes, it told of the mysterious sightings of UFOs and their possible connection to the disappearance of civilians in the fictional town of Freeport, Arizona. It is well known that in addition to writing and directing, Spielberg also lit and edited the picture. But what is not so widely reported is that he also composed the music. As a boy, he had studied the clarinet, and it was with that instrument that he wrote the score. And for me, that is a key component in appreciating Spielberg's entire approach to cinema. An orchestrator of some of the most memorable images in film history, the truth is that few, if any of those moments, will be anywhere near as powerful without music.
Those notes are so integral to Close Encounters that even before a frame of film had been shot, Spielberg sat down with composer John Williams to select the crucial combination of notes. Williams initially suggested seven or eight tones because he felt that was the minimum needed to place a melody in the audience's ear. But Spielberg explained he wanted less a melody and more a signal, something akin to Morse code, a short combination that would not only serve as a greeting, but one that would invite a response. Here is Williams in 2014, speaking at the Academy event behind the score The Art of the Film Composer, hosted by Tavis Smiley. It isn't a bad idea to quote Alfred Hitchcock, who said, I'd, I don't think exactly word for word, but in film, music represents the words that cannot be spoken. Mm-hmm. And music unites entire peoples. It unites entire religions. Its power is very great. I don't think any of us really fully understand how it, how it works. Mm. Leonard Bernstein in his lectures would tell us all the universality of, the, of harmony, the, the overtone series and so on, which many people will understand. But a doe is a doe and a soul is a soul. Wherever you are in the world, the division of sound is in nature and it is applied like gravity to every human being. And so even though harmonic vocabulary from one culture to another differs, Mm -hmm. uh, there are tremendous universalities in music, as he explained to us. All of these things are all linked together. It is this interconnection of all of these elements that makes music music. Spielberg's final cut of Close Encounters runs to 137 minutes, for which Williams provided one hour and 20 minutes of music. The film's climax arrives at Devil's Tower, Wyoming, where the world's leading scientists have not so much convened, but appear to have been summoned by the mysterious messages and codes emanating from the sky. And then, from that sky, spacecrafts begin to descend. But, spectacular as that sequence is, what with its play of colour, and light and sound, there was something much more personal going on. Here is Spielberg again from that same interview with James Lipton. Your father was a computer scientist. Your mother was a musician. Well, each one really sort of stood in in the different parts of my brain. My dad, a computer scientist, he was on the team that engineered the first commercial data processor at RCA in the uh, early 50s. And my mom was a concert pianist, so they, they, they got my attention in two different directions. When the spaceship lands, how do they communicate? That's a very good question. I like that. (laughs) You've answered the question. They make music on their computers and they are able to speak to each other. You see, I'd love to say, you know, I intended that and I realized that was my mother and father, but not until this moment. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. Time and technology have long since debunked theories about UFOs. But in their place, what still remains at the heart of Close Encounters is the theme of communication, of connection, of needing to understand, come together and befriend. In a modern context, inclusivity. While Close Encounters begins with a mystery, it never allows it to tip over and settle into suspicion, terror and paranoia. Yes, there are elements of the story that tap into the 1970s subgenre of conspiracy thrillers. But it only does so in order to reject the conspiracy and embrace the optimistic idea 
that we are not alone in the universe. And I believe it is those values that enable the film's message to transcend its initial release. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Parlez-vous français? Well, I beg your pardon, but my English is not good too. I want to share with you now the breakthrough that happened in India. We think it means something. We think it is important. To help you learn, I am using the head sign created by Zoltan Kodai. Kodai developed this sign to teach music to deaf children. One thing that can often date a film is its special effects. But the one thing that always saves those effects from becoming outdated is the feelings they generate. Joy, fear, sadness, surprise, anger, awe. Emotions are the greatest special effects because they never age. And so long as the director sustains a consistent tone, the audience will compensate for any flaws. It is why we still marvel at Willis O'Brien's stop-motion work in Marion C. Cooper and Ernest Shudzak's King Kong. A. Arnold Gillespie's creation of the tornado in Victor Fleming's The Wizard of Oz, and Douglas Trumbull's Stargate sequence in Stanley Kubrick's 2001. Among the many marvels Trumbull conjured for Close Encounters, the one that still astonishes me is the cloud formations from which the UFOs emerge. Here is Trumbull speaking on the Blu-ray special edition. The real breakthrough came when Scott Squires thought up this great concept for the clouds, which was to have a tank half full of salt water and the, and the top half full of fresh water so that there'd be a difference in specific gravity between the top and the bottom half that would be invisible to the camera, but would allow you to put paint into the fresh water, which would billow out like clouds, but it would perform that kind of flat bottom atmospheric effect you get with clouds when clouds don't come below a certain uh, altitude. And I personally manipulated all the arrival of the clouds and the spraying of this paint into the tank. So we'd get about one shot a day, maybe two shots a day sometimes. Very laborious process. However laborious it was for Trumbull and his crew, it was something else entirely for the cast. The vast majority of the effects had not yet been devised until well after the actors had gone home, which meant that Richard Dreyfus, Melinda Dillon, François Truffaut and a then three-year-old Carrie Guffey had to pretend they could see what Spielberg and his team had not yet figured out. But through a variety of tricks and techniques, Spielberg was able to glean from his cast the precise looks of wonder, awe and above all joy that he needed to persuade the audience of his fiction's emotional reality. Here is the director on the same Blu-ray. There's something about Carrie that I liked, and he responded to visual aids more than anything else. He responded to, I would bring, I would, I would bring gift boxes to the set with a toy inside, and I would slowly unwrap the gift, telling him all along this was a present I had bought for him while the cameras were rolling. And I put the gift on the stepladder, so it was, it would be as if he was looking up at the colors coming from the clouds down toward his farmhouse. And so as he's staring up, what he's really looking at, and the reason he's smiling like that is his eyes are salivating. I am kind of torturously unfolding this gift wrapping, undoing the bow one ribbon at a time and taking down the sides of the gift wrapping until a little toy car came out. The trick for Guffey was the revelation. And it is the same with the audience. Just as he had done with the shark in the first half of Jaws, Spielberg delayed revealing the full scale of the mothership. 
and the delay was made all the more tantalising because of the hints of what it might look like. Consider the sequence early on at the Indianapolis Air Traffic Control Centre. Instead of showing us, Spielberg has personnel gather around a monitor and listen in as pilots first report and then doubt what they are seeing in the sky. Ares 31, do you wish to report a UFO? Over. Negative, we want to report one of those either. Uh, Ares 31, do you wish to file a report of any kind? Over. I wouldn't know what kind of report to file, Senator. Uh, Ares 31, uh, me neither. I'll try to track traffic to destination. Over. Watch that carefully and you will see clues to another of Spielberg's cinematic heroes. At first, only one controller is at the monitor. But as the tension grows, more controllers gather, and the way Spielberg frames the whole thing, bringing the faces in, one by one by one. Well, watch the opening to John Ford's The Searchers, when the Edwards family gather about the porch to see who is emerging from the desert. Both directors arrange their actors like notes on sheets of music, their appearance measured out in perfect rhythm, with each one adding to the visual harmony. Spielberg structured his film around a series of sequences, some of them with entirely different characters set in different countries and even on different continents. But each of the episodes are linked by the same mystery. For me, the main quest of the central character, Roy Neary, always reminds me, in a curious way, of David Lean's masterpiece, Lawrence of Arabia. As different as the films may appear, they both depict men on a quest, and very acutely, a lonely quest which puts them in search for an answer, so enigmatic, they're not even certain they know how to ask the question. In Lawrence, while we gradually figure out it is a search for identity, Lawrence's own journey is a lonely one because it brings him no answers and only leaves him even more isolated. By contrast, in Close Encounters, Roy is obsessed by a series of visions which deliver for him a level of joy and connectivity he has never experienced before. And if you watch closely, Spielberg has already given us a brief hint of just what that vision really means. Early on, Roy is at home with his family and playing on television is the 1956 version of the Ten Commandments. And that hint throws into very vivid relief what really happens at the end of Close Encounters. Just as Moses descended from Mount Sinai, so too does the mothership come from the heavens with a message of hope. Once more, thank you for listening and keep watching the skies.